I had another situation flying over the Bering Sea. Airline pilots who were heading in the other direction, a higher altitude, they radioed down and they were like, look, there's no way you're going to make it. It's a bad storm that just developed. And I was like, I can't turn back and I can't go to Russia. And uh, so they asked me for my parents' name and phone number. And it got real, real quick. So this podcast is going to be a little bit different. Now, the majority of people that I've had on this show have been actors, actresses, had some politicians, and of course, some of my favorite rappers, where today's guest is the most different guest that I've had thus far. Today's guest does not fit any of those categories that I just mentioned. He is not an actor, a rapper, a singer, or a sports figure. He is a pilot, and not just any pilot, but the youngest one to fly around the world in a solo engine plane. The only African-American pilot to do so. Barrington Irving is up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. So unfortunately, R. Kelly ruined I Believe I Can Fly because that would so be appropriate for my next guest, who, by the way, is the first, I guess, non-celebrity that I've had on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. But nevertheless, um, I feel like I'm definitely in the company of black history uh, because joining me is Barrington Irving, who is the youngest person and the first black person to fly solo around the world. Thanks for joining me, Barrington. Glad to be here. Yeah, I saw you laughing at that R. Kelly joke. We yeah, still yeah, joke about well, R. Kelly. <laughs> we, 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 we could run with maybe Lenny Kravitz. Yeah, yeah you know what? We, yeah, we could I want to fly away. There exactly, you go. I, exactly. See, I, I love Lenny Kravitz. He's so fine and older. But that's a story for another day. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I came across your story from a friend of mine who I think read about you somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where. And... It was really inspiring. I Thank mean, you. it was uh, not just the fact that you flew around the world, but your journey into becoming a pilot, what inspired you, just your entire sort of history um, was extremely inspiring. We hear so much about, you know, black people who, who rap, who sing, who entertain, um, that there is definitely, uh, we definitely should give uh, more room and highlight and position more people like you because, for the young people listening, you have a much better chance of becoming a pilot than being LeBron James, right? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so let's just start from the beginning. What made you fall in love with planes and, and aviation? So to be quite honest, aviation was just something that came out the blue. You know, I, I grew up here in Miami. Miami was just everything to me. At the time, I played football for a team ranked number one in the country, Miami Northwestern. You went to Northwestern, right? That's right, Miami now, is that where, is that where Teddy, uh, Teddy uh, Bridgewater Bridgewater, yep, yep. yep. Mm -hmm. So I think our high school, last I checked, creates the fourth amount of NFL players in the league. And so I was one of those kids, too. All I wanted to do was play ball. Until one day I'm in a store minding my own business and I see this brother step out of a Lincoln Navigator in a uniform and he had a nice bracelet on and he walked into the store and I'm just staring at him like, man, this brother looks like he makes a lot of money. Had no clue what he did. And he saw us staring at him, walked over to me, said, hey, son, you ever thought about becoming a pilot? I was like, I'm not smart enough to fly an airplane. But I asked him one critical question. I was like, man, how much money do you make? And he was like, son, I make $117 an hour. Keep in mind, this was back in 2001. 
That still sounds pretty good in 2019, though. Right? And <laughs> when he said $117 an hour, I mumbled under my breath. I said, legally? And he was like, yeah, this is what I do. And he explained everything to me, became my mentor. And he was like, look, I'll speak with you one time a month for 30 minutes. So for 30 minutes, I'll tell you where I'm at in the world, what I'm doing. And that was it. And I fell in love with it with aviation through him and then my former high school teacher miss batiste who i couldn't stand this woman but she nagged me so much i turned down football scholarships and said i'll pursue a career in aviation i can't believe you turned down football scholarships um which obviously for you to get a scholarship that means you had to be pretty good right what position did you play so i played fullback mostly a little bit of linebacker but mostly fullback and i just thought you know football would have been my ticket out too and um much credit to Captain Gary Robinson, who changed my life. But my high school teacher, Miss Batiste, if it wasn't for her nagging me constantly, and she was like, just pursue aviation. And when I turned down the scholarships, my parents looked at me and said, well, you're the genius. Figure out how you're going to pay for school. And she taught me how to get accepted into my local community college. And then I got a scholarship to HBCU, Florida Memorial University. So I was at Broward College, then Florida Memorial University, and that was it. So um, where, if had you pursued football, where, where could you have gone? University of Florida, um, uh, Auburn. Um, I'm trying to think who else was a big one. Um, oh, goodness. Those Louis, are two, Louisville. Those are three pretty big um, ones right there. <laughs> you know, so there are tons of opportunities. And you know how it goes. Although those, you know, those are some great schools. Um, everybody comes to Northwestern, you know, and just South Florida as a whole. Um, to scout talent, and and uh, there's tons of talent down here. So did your friends think you were out of your mind, your peers? Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember the first time I told some of the guys I played ball with, they were like, black people fly planes? And that was such a genuine moment for me where that's the same response I had when I saw that commercial airline pilot. So, you know, a lot of the guys I knew, they were – they they knew I had that interest, and then that interest turned into passion, and everything was it, it was just history after that. So, uh, talk to me about the first time that you are up close on a plane, like that you ha- you know see and and kind of um, you know navigate your way around your first plane. What was that experience like, and how did that happen? So, uh, my mentor who introduced me to aviation, um, he basically paid for my first orientation flight. Now, I'm afraid of heights. And before a you pilot, let, that's yes. afraid of heights. And mark my Letting words. <laughs> mark my words. There are tons of pilots who are also afraid of heights too, as well. It's it's just something different when you fly a plane. You know everything going on, all the math and science. But when when that trip happened, all we did we basically flew over my neighborhood, and I saw the world from a totally different perspective. And I just wanted to see more of it. You know, all I knew was the neighborhoods I grew up in, and that was it. And that was just an eye-opening experience for me. What's the process? Like, what does it take, um, you know, to become a pilot? Like, what did you have to go through from an academic standpoint? Like, your training, what, what's your background there? Well, from an academic standpoint, um, I had to major in aeronautical science at the time. 
Um, even though now I'm an entrepreneur and a you know a couple of successful businesses, I'm like, man, I should have majored in business back then. I would have gotten a head start. But I majored in aeronautical science, and you go to flight school. So the same way you go to school, you got quizzes, exams, whole nine yards. Um, you have the same type of focus at flight school where you first got your private pilot license. That's where you could fly in good weather, and then you have your instrument rating, right? So for example, you know JFK when he passed, he got into instrument condition but wasn't ready to do that, where you, you basically fly on instruments, you can't see anything outside. You know, then you go on to your multi-engine, uh, your commercial license, uh, flight instructor, if you so choose, and that's it. But it's, it is expensive. It's definitely gotten a lot more expensive uh, flight training. You also have the military as an, a wonderful option, too, as well, um, to pursue your flight training. So um, it's just really... There's a number of different ways you could go about it, whether private or through military, but it's intense, man. I'm not going to lie to you. It's an intimidating industry, whether you're flying a plane, working on one, it's very intimidating, but it's just practice and repetition, just like an athlete. You know, I honestly felt when I was going through flight training, I felt like an athlete, except I'm, you know, just working different muscles, right? You're definitely working your brain a lot more. And, and um, it was just an interesting transition. But I was competitive, and, and it was a challenge that was very fulfilling. So what's this process like if you're, you know, a black man, a person of color? I would imagine there's probably not a lot of people as you're going through this training that look like you. So what's that experience like? Yeah, you know, I, you? I remember when I got into flight training, um, at the time the stat was uh, less than 1% of pilots were black. I think it's now at two or three percent, and um, and less than that are, are women. So um, it is an intimidating process. But there are a number of organizations out there, right? So you got like organization Black Airline Pilots, right? You have uh, AOPA, Aircraft Owners Pilots Association. Um, you have even my organization, Experience Aviation, where we work with tons of kids down here in South Florida. There's a lot more access today. Uh, to get involved in aviation. It, it's literally as simple as just going to your local airport. You know, there are tons of private airports literally within most, uh, uh, within a close distance from a lot of neighborhoods. And you could just literally go to a flight school and just start asking questions. And there's tons of information online. Uh, NASA has information as well. You know, so there, there are a lot more resources now where you could just go online and almost educate yourself as to the processes and different avenues you can take the door. What do you attribute the fact that there aren't more, um, you know, black people who become or want to be pilots or, or are pilots? Access. I mean, most of the kids I work with, um, for example, um, through our nonprofit, Experience Aviation, most of the kids I work with, um, they've never been inside of an airport. They've never flown on an airplane. Um, sometimes I take kids flying right here alongside the beach. I've never seen the beach before. I'm like, man, where do y'all go when y'all skip school? But anyways, that's, that's, a, that's something different. But it, the, the big factor is access. You know, um, no one in, you know, these kids' families are in the aviation industry or their parents were a pilot or anything like that. So that's the biggest factor I found. And to be quite honest, aviation works really well for a lot of minorities. And, and part of the reason for that is because a lot of it is very hands-on. No two days are the same. So I found, man, that's actually a great thing to attract kids and to motivate them. And um, it's a wonderful industry. It's literally changed my life. And there are tons of people, because our industry is so small, 
black, white, whatever the case may be, there it's at a point where we're just trying to get more people, you know, into the field because there's a shortage. The average mechanic is 56 years old. Think about that. Wow. Yeah, Experience Aviation, as you mentioned, is your nonprofit that you have. Um, what's your mission, your purpose? Uh, just give me some background on, on what what you're trying to do with this organization. Well, what, what we try to do is leverage aviation and science and math to help kids achieve their highest self. That's, that's really the whole point of it. We've had kids build airplanes from scratch in 10 weeks and fly it. We've had kids build cars faster than Ferraris and race it. And these are kids who come in, no prerequisite. I don't care if you come from foster care, straight A kid, doesn't matter because at the end of the day, these kids don't have access to these type of experiences. And one of the things I've found in education, uh, you know, everyone acts as if there's like a real challenge or a real struggle to try to figure out how to motivate kids. It's quite simple to me. Kids are bored, right? And one of the biggest issues, one of the biggest issues from my perspective is content, right? And content that kids can connect with, relate to, and answer that question we've all had when will I ever use this in life? And, um, and we've been able to do that through our organization. It's been, it's been quite successful. So where, where are these kids, where do they typically come from that you work with? So we first started in Miami, and then we expanded out. So we've done builds in Atlanta. We've done builds in Detroit. Uh, we've wow, done, sound good. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Uh, we've done builds, uh, goodness, in Texas and uh, different parts of, of the nation. And really, we just show up in a, in a community. We say that's what we're going to do. First come, first serve. No, we there is no background check or anything like that. First come, first serve. Do you want to do something amazing and, and, and do something that builds uh, self-worth? And it's just been an amazing thing to see. Now, I'm told that um, one point, one of your students was Trayvon Martin. Yes, ma'am. Um, uh, tell me what that experience was, was like. Oh, man, that, that, was, that was a tough experience because, you know, he reminded me a lot of his, of, of working with Trayvon reminded me of me in a lot of ways because, for example, I remember sometimes if I was running to a meeting and I was leaving our learning center, I'd drop him off to football practice. So my high school colors were blue and gold. The, the team he was playing for in Pop Warner was was uh, yellow and black, right? And he had such a love for sports. But I was starting to see that transition where he was like, okay, I could still do sports, but he was falling in love with aviation. And <clears throat> that was a real, that was a real um, challenge to... To, to deal with, right? Because the definition of, of Trayvon Martin is kind of this kid you see in a hoodie, right? I know Trayvon Martin in a much different context, in a much greater context, to be quite honest. So there's a picture I carry of him uh, when he was in our program, and it, it's a powerful picture, and I want to show it to you, uh, Jamil. I want to show it to you because this really gives context to like what we were dealing with. So here we go. So there's a picture of Trayvon Martin in his flight suit back in the day standing beside me. And if we go to the next picture, you know what's interesting about this next picture is you see Trayvon Martin doing a robotics program. 
And I want you to look at every kid in that picture because the young man in the bottom of, of uh, bottom left-hand corner, he's a professional pilot in Europe. The young lady across from him, she's a certified aircraft and power plant mechanic. The other young lady in the picture is a medical student. Trayvon Martin didn't make it. Right. So that's how we saw him. Right. This kid of great potential. And um, in his application, he wrote this. It's only two sentences, but he said, I believe I should be accepted as a student into this program because I'm very interested in aircrafts and I'm also dedicated, reliable, and I like to finish what I start. I strive to be the best that I can be to make myself a better person. In my views, I think and hope that this will benefit me towards my future career as an aircraft mechanic or pilot. That was literally his application. Uh, you know, we have a picture of it framed in our office now, but, you know, it's just unfortunate. Yeah, what, um, what was his personality like? Oh, man, he was comical. He was comical. You know, we, we, work, with, <clears throat> we work with all types of kids. We work with all types of kids, but he was like the comical kid, of course, naturally athletic, um, and he had a good heart. You know, I'll never forget when I walked in the office and uh, one of my assistants said, hey, Trayvon was shot and he was killed. And I was like, what do you mean shot and killed? Because, you know, he just didn't run in like those type of circles. He was really a good kid. And uh, I was just sad to see how, you know, things were painted in a, in a different light. Well, what struck me about the photos you showed me was um, Trayvon Martin was very much a boy. You know, and I say that with intention because um, a lot of times when these unfortunate, tragic, horrible incidents occur um, between young black boys and the police is that people forget that this is a child. Mm -hmm. And I've made that point repeatedly whenever I've discussed Trayvon Martin. And in that uh, those photos you showed me, he looks so young, yep. you know, because he was young. Yep. And I think. You know, there was a lot of uh, media portrayals that tried to make it seem like he was a grown man. And this idea that um, he deserved what he had coming is still um, is still gut wrenching, you know, to to even know that there are a segment of people who actually think that this child deserve to be murdered because he was murdered. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the, the toughest challenges um was after we had kids build an airplane in 10 weeks and like we were on fire, man. We were having kids doing all these crazy things. Trayvon would have been part of the first group to build a car faster than a Ferrari 430 Spider. And that just like hit me like a ton of bricks. And uh, I'll be quite honest, um, of course it was a tragedy, but it really pushed me more to get involved in education, right? That was the first student I lost. And it just like really pushed me to get more involved in education, just going through that whole, that, that tragedy. And, and um, he was a smart kid. He was a smart kid. And he had a kid with, you know, he was a kid with a lot of potential and talent. And, you know, he was murdered. And, and it's, just, it's just as simple as that. And um, like you said, he was a child. Yeah. You know, and what people have to understand, too, is that, you know, racism, you know, it destroys lives like it is not, you know, a lot of times people talk about racism in the abstract is that you're literally robbing somebody of their future. I mean, mm -hmm. I saw the I don't know if you've had a chance to see it, the the Netflix um, series when they see us about yes. the Central Park Five yes. is that. 
that destroyed their lives. I mean, they still talk about how they will never be the same. They won't be right, how they still experience so much trauma um, or as we call them now, the exonerated five because of what racism did to them. And so I hope people understand that it has very real consequences and what it does and how it can in a moment undo somebody's life because they think that you are less than and don't deserve to be here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Not only it it also shifts perspective, you know, like Miami is my hometown. Right. And, and we've done some great things and know tons of great folks in the community from all areas, including law, law enforcement. And I drive some nice cars, but guess what? I don't tend any of them. Because of the experiences I've had. So now I don't tent any of my cars. As hot as it is in Miami, I don't tent any of them because I already know, you know. So it's, it's unfortunate the repercussions that, that occur subliminally we don't even take track of, you know, because of stuff like that. Yeah. Given how you had a mentor that sent your life in a different direction, is that also a reason why it's so um, important to you to kind of pay that for it? Oh, big time. Um, my mentor made me promise to do one thing. He said, I want you to promise to give back. And I was like, Captain Robinson, I don't have no money to give. How could I possibly give back? And he taught me the value of, you know, sharing your time, sharing your knowledge, sharing your experiences. And, and uh, he's still my mentor till this day. Well, um, I definitely want you to share some more knowledge uh, with me uh, because we're going to get into this flight around the world because I'm just fascinated by how one makes such an incredible journey and does it at such a young age. So when we come back, we're going to get into the flight around the world that certainly changed your life. Back in a moment. I'm back with Barrington Irving, who is telling us about the world of aviation and and more importantly, just about his journey uh, that has been very inspiring. And before the break, we were talking about your relationship with Trayvon Martin. And you told me off air before we went to break or before we came back, rather, that there's something special that you guys are are planning to do in his honor. No, absolutely. Um, So um, in 2020, uh, Trayvon would have turned 25 years old. So what we're going to do is pull 25 kids from the community and give them an opportunity to build a race car because he never got his chance to build a race car. So we're going to give him scholarships, had given the opportunity to build a race car from scratch. Um, There's a private racetrack being built at the airport called the Concourse Club, and we'll unveil the car. Would love to have you guys there, too, as well. But we want to do something of, I think we've had enough time to mourn. And I wanted to do something that really showed his potential and to show his potential to other young children who would be given the opportunity to do something he never got a chance to do. So we have our Build and Soar program. We're going to challenge these kids, 25 of them, to build a race car from scratch in his honor and launch them on their own career paths. Have you um, talked to his parents? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, uh, and I'm yes. sure they obviously probably clearly support him yes. about something like yes. this. Yeah. yeah. And what, what were those, um, you know, kind of conversations like with them, especially after he died? Uh, it's tough. Um, 
It's tough. Um, I, of, of course, a lot of people had a chance to hear the voice of his mother, as they should. I'm not sure if everyone got a chance to hear the voice of his father. He had a very present father. And um, um, to, to be quite honest, um, a part of how this was covered uh, bothered me because, you know, his father kind of fell to the wayside of he lost a child, too. And um, I, I, I'm a father. You know, I have Irish triplets. And, and you know, I, I, I would hate to think, but his father as well was very involved and brought him to the program and to the camp. And, you know, I shared this with him and I'm like, look, this is this is something that we really want to do and he gave his blessing. And it, it's something special, you know, to to honor a son where it's more than just a hoodie that you see. I mean, this was a bright kid with a future and it, it, it's tough. I, I think the hardest part for me in watching the parents go through that. Um, and of course, you mourn for mom as well tremendously was was seeing a father who was kind of ignored uh, publicly as it relates to his role and his impact in his son's life. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely, um, I, I think there was, a again, from the beginning, a narrative that would that people were trying to build. And a lot of people stuck to that narrative. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking about the media in, in particular. And uh, over time, I think as people found out more about the family, uh, understanding, you know, what the dynamics were. It's like, it's very easy to paint it as some troubled kid who mm -hmm. was up to no good, uh, who didn't have a father around, but that was not, not that that kid would deserve what happened, but that very much was not what Trayvon Martin, what his life and his dynamic with his parents was like at all. Not at all. So, um, but switching over to something uh, a little happier, um, if you will, is, you know, you are, you've made history as, you know, being the youngest uh, and first black person to fly around the world solo. How the hell did you come up with this idea <laughs> that you wanted to do something that insane? <laughs> yeah, um, you, know, you know, to be quite honest, it goes back to Captain Robinson when he challenged me to give back. And to be quite honest, I was so motivated by money. I'm like, man, all right, let me try to figure out something quick to do to impact a whole bunch of kids so I could start making $117 an hour. <laughs> that 117 right? like really burned in yeah, your brain. Yeah, that, that was burning. I'm from the hood, man. So I was like, okay, that's that was burned into my brain. And I just, I honestly just wanted to fly around the world to inspire a whole bunch of kids that knew nothing about setting any records. This was done back in 2007. Of course, I was like, for sure, a black man had to have flown around the world. That was not the case. And then I looked at it from an AIDS perspective. Uh, the youngest before me was 37. Figured out how to hack it and do it at the age of 23, of course, with some amazing people who gave me a chance. And um, it was tough to do. For two and a half years, people told me no. They said, you don't have the skills. You don't have the flight hours. When I departed to fly around the world, I only had about 400 hours. That's nothing. That's all the flight hours I had. Um, I had no weather radar, no de-icing. The day I departed from Miami, I only had $30 in my pocket. It was so funny because I saw these banners and signs at the airport. 5,000 people showed up. Everyone screaming, go Barrington, go. And I'm saying to myself, where am I going? I only got $30 in my pocket. But I strategically knew once I left, people would begin to believe in the mission. 
And sure enough, that's that's that you know, the further I went, the more money was contributed towards the project. And um it changed my life, changed my life and my perspective. But one of the most grueling things I've ever done. So ever done. how long did it, it take? It took me on uh, ninety seven days. 140 flight hours. I made 27 stops in 13 countries. Average flight legs were 10 to 11 hours. The longer ones were 14 hours. Keep in mind, I'm flying at an altitude not as high as the airliners. I'm in a single engine, four-seater airplane. We took out three of the four seats so I could squeeze extra fuel in there. And I'm flying at a much lower altitude with no no weather radar, no de-icing, and extremely, extremely dangerous to do. And um, there were times I didn't think I'd make it. You know, I'm from Miami. I don't know nothing about flying through sandstorms or, uh, you know, severe icing over the North Pacific. Of course, you go through training and preparation. But even then, back then, no one wanted to directly train me. I was able to get folks to, uh, you know, sponsor parts and different things. But they thought it was too much of a liability. So the whole journey was just figuring out hacks, right? So the plane I utilized cost $650,000. I couldn't afford that. So I took street knowledge and converted that into something positive. So, for example, uh, you know, I see cats who would steal cars. And after they steal the cars, they strip the car. And then they sell all the parts. That's how I learned about manufacturing. So when I couldn't get anyone to sponsor me a plane, what I did was I went to all the sub manufacturers and got the engine sponsored instead of asking for money, got the four seats in the plane sponsored instead of asking for money. And I literally pieced the plane together with 42 different companies to do it. Okay. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> that one, uh, it's amazing. Okay. So uh, you mentioned like this is this is scary, you know, to to do. So, what was the scariest encounter or encounters that you had during this journey? I, I think I have a uh, top two or three. So, one was um, I had a ten-hour flight um, from uh, Cairo, Egypt, to Dubai, and it was a nice, clear day, sunny day. It's about it took me about ten and a half, eleven hours, and everything was going well until all of a sudden I saw a wall of sand. So I had to fly through a sandstorm. And of course, this was back in 2007, and I'm flying over Saudi Arabia. So it wasn't like, oh, let me just land a plane right here. And Yeah, and you can't yeah, do a pit stop. Yeah, you can't <laughs> do no pit stop, right? So, um, and I didn't have enough fuel to do a U-turn. And um, so I flew through that. Um, I'll never forget the sound of sand scraping against the windshield of the airplane. Um, so you have no, I mean, I'm assuming you don't have any visibility as you No, doing. it's like you're flying in the clouds. That's how thick it was. And um, I was, I think I was at uh, like 21,000 feet. The highest I could go in the airplane was 25,000 feet. And my biggest concern was, okay, the engine isn't sputtering. So let me not try to climb. I don't want to scoop any, any more sand in there. So, uh, but the, the plane did well. Um, I had another situation flying over the Bering Sea. You know, so, you know, when you see these crazy guys hunting for huge crab and lobsters and stuff, that's a, a extreme environment. And I flew from northern Japan. Russia wouldn't allow me to fly into their airspace, although originally they did. But um, uh, airline pilots who were heading in the other direction at a higher altitude, they radioed down and they were like, look, there's no way you're going to make it. It's a bad storm that just developed. And I was like, I can't turn back and I can't go to Russia. And uh, so they asked me for my parents' name and phone number. And it got real, real quick. 
um, on that flight. I landed on an island only one mile long, two miles circumference, Shemi, Alaska, with 12 minutes of fuel left in my tank. Yeah, no de-icing. So how did you go on from there if you have 12 minutes of fuel? like? Yeah, I, I knew I had one shot to get into that airport. That was it. It was poor visibility. And you know what's the most ironic part is there's a small Air Force installation there, just private contractors. And when I landed and, you know, I, I kissed the ground and they had to actually help me get out the plane because my legs were pretty much numb, right? So I crawled out on my elbows and they have a sign there that says it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from here. And I was like, man, God got jokes sometimes. So, <laughs> so... I was very grateful to be alive, but um, yeah, that was a tough one. You're, as you mentioned a, a second ago, you're sometimes in these stretches of like 10, 11 hours when yep. you're flying. Mm -hmm. What do you do during <laughs> 10 or 11 hours? Man, you sing to yourself, you talk to yourself. The biggest thing is don't fall asleep. Um, you also learn how to conserve energy. You know, um, it's, it's literally like being an athlete on, on, you know, you're on a long journey and you learn to really conserve energy. Uh, one drawback was uh, I couldn't bring food from one country to another. It was just a headache and a nightmare to deal with. And um, it, it was tough. It was tough. Um, it's not like, you know, if you're flying over the ocean for so many hours, it's very easy for you to fall asleep. And you think about it, you know, an airline flight has two crews you know, for trips like that. It's just me. And I was only 23 years old and, you know, I'm flying to places I've never been to. And how many different points or, I don't know, were there a lot of them where you thought maybe I should go back? Oh, tons. tons I remember okay. after flying through the sandstorm, I was looking at, you know, the larger airliners and I'm like, man, you know, my plane could maybe fit in the cargo bay of that plane. I just, all I got to do is just turn on the tracking device, but people know something's wrong if they see me at 40,000 feet, you know, because my plane could only go to 25,000 feet. But, uh, you know, honestly, what, what really pushed me was the letters and emails we were getting from kids and teachers from all around the world. And that, that really pushed me. Mm. So the day that you landed, when you completed the journey, what did that feel like? The day I landed and finished everything, I I felt like the man. I'm not going to lie to you. I felt like the man. And, um, you know, it, I could compare it to just winning a championship to do something many people didn't think could be um, done before. But, uh, of course, you know, mom's always got to cap it for you. So mom made my favorite Jamaican dish. And... Um, after I ate the dish. What's your favorite Jamaican uh, dish? So oxtail, of oh, course. God, I was like, it oxtail. better be oxtail. <laughs> oxtail with some rice and peas, of course. Nice. Shout out to all the Jamaicans out there. And <laughs> she made my favorite dish. And, you know, I went to go put the dish in the, in the sink after I was finished. And she was like, boy, what you doing? I'm looking at her like, what do you mean? She was like, boy, you better... You better wash up the dishes. I'm like, Mom, I just flew around. The, I literally just flew around the Mama world. Gotta keep you humble. Yeah. So, but I, I'll be honest with you. I felt I, I was so grateful. Um, I think seeing the impact, I just didn't know so many people were impacted by something I did. And, and that was just the humbling part about it. So how did your life change? Oh, goodness. Um you know, outside of, you know, endorsement deals and all that other stuff. And um, 
I remember when I got my first endorsement deal. They're like, do you accept honorariums? I'm like, I don't even know what an honorarium is. But I'm like, man, I'm from the hood. I'm like, yeah, 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 I accept honorariums. How much will you be providing? You know, but but to be quite honest, um, I think the biggest way it changed is I it opened up my perspective, right? So I saw how other countries were using technology. I was able to see different industries through one trip. You know, we think here in the States we have everything, and you have some countries doing some amazing things with with technology and, and, and different types of industries, and it opened up my mind. And to be quite honest, that's how I ended up launching the Flying Classroom. So that's how we work with tons of kids uh, in schools across the nation. And I just continue to do these expeditions. I'm an explorer for National Geographic as well. And um, it, it just honestly changed my life. So um, did you ever feel any pressure, not necessarily to do it again, I'm not suggesting that, but like to live up to a certain amount of hype or, you know, whatever was persona that was built based off you doing something this incredible? Um, yes, I did feel some pressure. Um, of course, after you do something, everybody's coming at you to do all these different things. And then, you know, it takes a while to kind of find your compass, right, and and find what's what works for you. And it was very unpopular when I told everyone I was going to get involved in education. Very unpopular decision. What do people decision. think you should do? Oh, they're like, oh man, you should you know, go to the airlines, get paid, or you should get involved in some space stuff. You should become an astronaut. And all those things are great things. But one of the things that really disappointed me is a lot of folks were just like, they're kind of bummed out I got involved in education. And the reason why I got involved in education is I'll never forget this story of a woman who followed me around the world. Uh, She in her classroom and she didn't have a map in her class. So she went to a store, bought bought a shower curtain of the world, brought it into the classroom, hung it up and started writing on, you know, the map and, and talking about different places I travel to. She thanked me for inspiring her kids, but she said, I need you to empower them. And that she never, I just met her a few months ago, you know, 12 years later, and she never knew that letter changed my life. And um, it was the best decision I ever made because I had a chance to learn the industry of education and then, you know, create a successful educational company around it. So, so there are um, a lot of people, young people, um, not so young people who have uh, unconventional dreams. You had an unconventional dream of wanting to be a, a pilot. So what advice do you have to people who have these kind of passions, but maybe they're afla- afraid to explore them because, you know, people will laugh at them or, you know, they're just not even sure how to even to go about it, that they have a dream. What advice would you have I think, for them? I, I think part of it is what you just said. You use a key word, explore. I always encourage kids and parents to explore something different. You know, if I wasn't willing to explore something different with this pilot I randomly met, if I wasn't willing to explore something different and just travel around the world, uh, you have to be willing to explore. And as it relates to judgment and stuff, let me tell you something. When I played ball, uh, there's a saying we always had, you know, pain is temporary, pride is forever. 
and and that just has stuck with me uh, just ever since football days. And yes, there's a critic for everything. Even the most positive thing has a critic. And I, I know you know about that, right? <laughs> <A> so, <little bit. laughs> so, you know, you, you just got to brush that off and, and be able to be comfortable with who you are, regardless of what you have or what you don't have. And that in itself is an art. And I think uh, in, in society, we overlook that. But being comfortable with you and, 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 and with what you are and what you believe, that is an art and it's a skill. It's not a soft skill. It's a core skill to humanity. And, you know, those, those are the things I think, you know, I would say to any young person out there. Well, that is uh, good knowledge um, and definitely a mic drop for, for this podcast. So, Barrington, I want to thank you so much for taking some time out. Uh, to, to talk with me. Again, I was just moved by your story. I think it's a story that a lot of people just need to hear just so we can, to use your word, explore possibility. Because uh, there's so many things in our lives that prevent us from exploring those possibilities. And you're an example, a great example of somebody who, you know, had a thought bubble and turned it into something uh, that will be forever etched in history. So thank you and good luck with everything. You have a book out that I encourage people to buy called Touch the Sky, uh, my solo flight around the world, Barrington Irving. It's a scholastic. Yeah, you can get it at scholastic.com. So make sure you check that out. And of course, uh, su- uh, support Experience Aviation. Yeah, feel free, feel free to visit our website, experienceaviation.org or follow me on social media at Barrington Irving or on YouTube at Captain Barrington Irving. Yes. So make sure you you check them out on all of those platforms uh, to stay inspired. Um, One final segment to go. I think you guys know what that is. There's a part of me because you are so, uh, you know, inspiring and dignified that I feel slightly ashamed of telling you what this final segment is. But nevertheless, it is what it is. So fuck it. I'm bothered is next when we come back. So you guys know I'm always bitching about the uniquely L.A. shit that I have to experience. So around here is two things that people will straight up shame you about bread and straws. But for the purposes of this commentary, I'm going to keep it to the straws. Look, I'm environmentally friendly. I believe in climate change. I believe we should stop abusing our natural resources, yada, yada, yada. But I got to draw a line at these straws, man, because here in L.A., you have to ask for a straw. They just expect you to put your lips up to the glass and you just have to be confident that the glass is clean. But then when you ask for a straw, they don't give you the regular, sturdy, trustworthy straw that you're accustomed to. They give you this old bullshit, flimsy, basic ass cardboard straw that basically buckles as soon as you take a couple sips. So fuck it, I'm bothered about these whack ass, weak ass, fake straws. Don't give me the chihuahua of straws. Give me the Rottweiler of straws. Don't give me the Captain America. America straw before Captain America started taking steroid straw. Give me the Captain America wielding Thor's hammer of straws. And yet I was a spoiler alert for Endgame. Too bad if your ass didn't see it already. Stay unbothered. 
Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill.